Welcome to My on Mondays, an explorative approach to the possessive my through narratives, art, and sound. Each Monday brings a new creation and unique perspective. My on Mondays is brought to you by Ming Studios, a contemporary art space and international artist residency program dedicated to the exhibition, experience, and exploration of arts and culture. Along with exhibiting artists from around the world, Ming also serves the community by hosting innovative programs including performances, workshops, screenings, readings, artist talks, and other cultural activities. For more information or if you'd like to participate in My on Mondays, you can visit our website at mingstudios.org. Hello and welcome to My on Mondays. Starting today and in the coming weeks, we'll be featuring a series of written work under the parental or parental-adjacent themed title, My Mother, My Father, Myself. Today's featured artist is Elizabeth Sharp McKetta. Elizabeth is the author of 13 books, including Edit Your Life and The Creative Year, 52 Workshops for Writers. She holds literature degrees from Harvard, Georgetown, and the University of Texas at Austin. She wrote her Ph.D. dissertation on the intersections between memoir and myth, a concept that informs her teaching and writing and her entire way of looking at the world. She currently teaches writing for Harvard and Oxford and is the founder of the Book Year Writer's Circle. Her piece today is an excerpt from her book Awake with Asa Shoryu and Other Essays, titled Madewell. Madewell. One. Whatever else my mother is or isn't, she was well made by the forces that shaped her life, and she was determined that the same be true for me, even when I was 41. February, just before the virus struck, was the last time I ever set foot in my parents' home in the city where they raised me. I visited alone, which I rarely did. While I was there, my mother took me shopping for a gray woolen blazer I felt sure I would never wear, but that was symbolic of my mother's knowledge about essential things, or perhaps simply of my mother. My mother bear mother who has abundant advice and who believes that lines are for people who are afraid to skip them. My bulldog mother who would ferociously call the governor's office to demand a coronavirus vaccination after her doctor told her she would have to wait. My clever mother with her system-navigating genius. I've seen interviews with ancient Jewish women who used such persistence to talk Nazi guards into giving them their family back. My mother got her way with the governor. She usually does. Somehow, I didn't inherit this trait. The buying of this woolen object struck me as funny at the time, though I'm still not sure if it is really a story. Like anything that happens between mothers and daughters, it's never clear what to label it. Here goes. As soon as I arrived in Austin, before I unpacked my small solo travel backpack into my old dresser and set up my computer so I could write mornings, both my ways of creating new routines within the old beautiful chaos, my mom called me into her closet. She was standing among her things, her half-dozen necklace holders with bright, fun necklaces, 
ranging from family heirlooms to wooden beads on strings. Below her was the cat's litter box, and on the wall were art and clocks. Everywhere my mother lives, she puts on the wall an endless array of clocks, all telling different times. Not only are all the times different, but so are the clocks. One belongs in a 1950s diner. One is Humpty Dumpty, with hands ticking across the face of an egg with legs. One is gold and meant to represent communism, for its tinkering workers make the second-hand move. One is a fly swatter with an incessant escaping fly as the minute hand. One is painted with a dreamy mural and has never worked. Is the point that time is just nonsense? Is it that all of life plays out against our ticking mortality and we must always keep watch? Or do her clocks represent the world she made for us, where time likes to play and where unless we really, really, really wanted to, we would never have to grow up. On this day, my mother was taking something off a clothes hanger and holding it up for me. A tan woolen blazer, size small, from a company called Madewell. Try it on, she said, holding it around my shoulders. It's a great company that your sister loves, and it's having a 30% off sale right now. I was living then in a tiny house, 275 square feet. My closet was made up of eight dresses, two sweaters, two exercise outfits, and some leggings, socks, and knickers. It was no bigger or smaller than my husband's, son's, or daughter's wardrobes. In a tiny house, you think hard before bringing anything inside. In a tiny house, there's only room for you, as you are now. My relationship with stuff has evolved in spite of and because of my mother. My closet is the same width as my hips. Still, it shrinks. Friends come for dinner and leave with new boots, a purse, a black dress. I have somehow a sense that it is impossible to have few enough things. But there's a part of my mother's bounty I want to preserve, to cultivate. As a young mother, she had a generosity of time, too, that I seem to lack. Her days were open for children. Our disorder and our timeless nonsense gave structure to her days. Even as an adult, I have often been dressed by my mother, who used to greet me when I was home from college with endless black dresses that she bought in my size. I wore them to pieces. Now I'm in my 40s, and I don't like the blazer. Still, I put it on because she is my mother. It is boxy and not at all my style, but I said, nice, and gave it back. I remember a time, 20 Christmases ago, when the same thing happened with cookies. Do you like the amaretto biscuit from the sample tray at the cafe? My mother asked. Yeah, it's nice, I answered untruthfully, then found a 10-pound bag of them beneath the tree, from Santa. Do you think this is the right size? She asked of the blazer. An extra small would take away some of this extra material on the back. She pulled a handful of tan wool away from my spine. I think either size is fine, but I really don't need one of these. I doubt I'll wear it much. She nodded. It was clear to her that I was wrong. While I sat on her bathroom counter and looked at her clocks, she called the Maidwell store on Trendy South Congress Avenue. They had a gray version of the extra small blazer that they would hold until tomorrow night. We'll go tomorrow, my mother said to me.
too. As I was drafting this piece, my beloved mom sent me an Atlantic article about good advice and how it threatens parent-child relationships when grandchildren are involved. Let me know if ever I need to change, she bravely wrote in the email. My mother, who, like any being on earth, is caught in the web between the need to be her purest version of herself and the need to evolve in order not to perish. My mother, who has heard from all four children, all versions of, Mom, you're bugging me. Mom, you're just freaked out that I married someone different from Dad. Mom, stop giving me advice. Who has watched her children step away, step away, step away. But then the moment we need anything, we scurry home to her. Back to our old bedrooms, which she has kept for us just so. Back to her long wooden table that could have held Jesus and all twelve disciples with room for a few more. What is it about daughters and moms in fairy tales that the girls are always lost to them? Perhaps it is because, in life, we always are. Here is the free advice my mother has given me, always preceded with, free advice is worth what you pay for. In a relationship, it's better to be the dumper than the dumpy. When in doubt, go to graduate school. Repeat as needed throughout life. In choosing a career, obtain the highest degree. Better to be a lawyer than a legal assistant. Better to be a physician than a PA. Better to get a PhD than an MA. However many degrees you have, stay home with your children, if you can. Best to have at least three children. Always have a dog and let it sleep in the bed. Drink organic milk. Wear sunscreen. Read the New York Times, go to the doctor. It is generally good advice. 90% of her advice has shaped 90% of my life's good parts. But the remaining 10% is generally wrong. A nuisance. It's Amaretti biscuits and Madewell blazers and giving her children a drive downtown but dropping them off on the wrong side of Lamar Boulevard. Where to draw the line? Would it have been better to have said no thanks to the lift and simply walked? As I woke up the morning of our shopping trip, I wondered dizzily what time it was. All of the clocks in my bedroom said different times. The chicken clock said 4.15, which seemed the most likely. It had said 4.15 for years. 3. Often I find my children entertaining themselves with gifts my mother has sent. How I loved finding my baby daughter sprawled naked on the carpet after the bath, reading a cardboard book from my mother with a photo of a baby eating a banana. My mother and I both nearly cried when I emptied out my old bedroom when it was time to leave Texas after graduate school. After a lifetime of following her free advice, of being the dumper, of getting the PhD, drinking organic milk, wearing sunscreen, letting all dogs sleep in my bed, All these beautiful objects thrown away, given away to the charity shops that my mother liked to browse and buy from, adding to the bounty of her irreducible clutter. My mother expresses love through gifts, through a saturating sense of generosity. Her gifts have furnished nearly all of my houses. Now I watch this process in my daughter, who inherited from me, who inherited from my mother, who inherited from our 
cave-decorating ancestors, this need to surround ourselves with a thousand potentially useful objects. This would be one thing for a woman who never leaves the house, who lives in one place all her life. But my mother has a nomadic heart, attuned to any rumble that might turn home into a threat. She is always ready for the next pack-and-move, prepared to abandon everything but her young. She's never needed to do this, but she remains, at all times, prepared. My heart, like my mother's and my daughter's, will always be a site of clashing battles between the abundance of having everything and the fly-by-night urge to leave it all behind. Myself versus myself, down to the very ventricles. As a young woman, my mother loved the same sorts of men that I loved. Her first husband was a dark-haired, brooding doctor with a family history of suicide, a lost, broken-winged boy who flitted moth-like to the bright light of my mother's temperament. Her first boyfriend after she divorced, at age 26, was a poet. He wrote poems for her. She was in graduate school, a hard, disciplined worker who treated school like a job, who gave herself one day off from studying per week, usually Saturday who remembered what it was like to be left without money, and who swore to herself that she would do the work to never again go without. She would not marry the poet. Instead, she studied at the law library, where her ex-husband's younger brother introduced her to my dad. He was tall and red-haired and smiley. There was none of the brooder in him, none of the poet. He was a worker like she, and he had a bright light of his own to which others flitted. They would marry, breed, both get law degrees, and set up a house hub together where they would always be outnumbered by children and have too many pets. Throughout my childhood, I was almost entirely my mother's daughter. We had the same coloring, the same runner's legs. We both liked people. We both loved school. Frequently, I have heard her say that I was an easy teenager, which is true. I swam along in her wake because I liked the way she sailed. Her life looked like fun to me. It had a too-muchness that I admired. There are always too many dogs, too many kids crowding up the house, both her own and our friends. Too much food in the pantry and too many conflicting schedules to plan a sit-down meal. The only times I remember sitting down as a family were on holidays, with cousins and grandparents, and my grandfather saying grace while the rest of us heathens blinked and held hands. The chaos of my mother's house included too many clocks, too many coffee mugs, too many wooden chickens, too many collections that kept growing. It was a house with much play and few rules. It was a house where a part of me wanted to stay forever. 4. My mom, who sleeps later than my dad and I, woke up that morning ready. Maidwell would open in half an hour, and traffic in Austin is awful. Best to go now, try it on, say yes or no to it, she said. We set out in her car with my mother driving. She wore a green and blue plaid flannel long-sleeved shirt. She brought for me the too-big tan blazer, in case I got cold. I wore one of my eight tiny house dresses, three of which I had packed for this weekend. We battled the midday traffic across the bridge, talking about our classes. 
We're both teachers, and this is an easy default. All the parking spots were taken on South Congress Avenue, except for two right in front of Madewell. My mother pulled in and said, Thank you, Gloria! Gloria is my mother's guardian parking angel. Gloria never fails to find her a spot. When I moved to Washington, D.C. for two years in my 20s, for more graduate school, my mother gifted me Gloria, too. And since then, I have a sort of magic for being able to find a good spot to park. My mom was especially pumped about this, for Gloria must really want us to be at Madewell if she left us not just one perfect spot, but two. But then we realized that all the parking had to be backwards, facing out. This was going to be hard. I would have given up at that were I the driver. But not my mom. She waited until a small traffic break, pulled out, and waved at the cars who waited. All the other drivers wanted her spot, because that is how Austin is. How all cities are when they grow too far from their roots, their genetic blueprints. A few drivers began to honk. Undeterred, my mother turned the car around, taking up both lanes of inbound traffic toward downtown, and maneuvered the car backward in a clumsy loop until it fit, somewhat, in one of the two parking places in the correct direction. It was not inside the lines. Think I'll get a ticket? she asked. Nah, I said. There was still a full open spot to her left, into which the most persistent of the waiting drivers pulled. We got out, and my mother thanked him for his patience. Then we went into Madewell. Boxy sweaters, heavy, well-made plaid shirts, long varieties of jeans, striping tables like blue tongues of taffy. All of the other shoppers were hip, Austinite women in their 20s and 30s. One was pregnant. She was wearing a gorgeous striped gray dress tight against her belly, and I thought with a sudden flare of nostalgia about what that had been like. Five. I know my mother loved to be pregnant, did it five times, though only four babies lived. She says often that she wished she had done it once more. I envied her feeling this way, her forgiving the rebellious body out of love for its creature. Of pregnancy, I remember mostly the nausea, both times, and the publicness of the body, how compelled strangers felt to touch my belly and give advice. I had been a growly, angry pregnant woman, warding off comments by people I liked and still like, but who lost their heads entirely and said abhorrent things such as, when are you going to drop that thing? And, you're still pregnant? These are direct quotes. When I was pregnant, my mother always wanted to talk about the body. She wanted to know how my breasts felt, if I was feeling the practice contractions, what foods I craved. Her excitement that her firstborn was soon joining her in motherhood had a palpability and a boiling over quality. This makes sense, for there is nothing so physical, so body humbling and mammalian as having a baby. She wanted to talk about how we were alike, and perhaps I bristled at being pulled into the mother camp before I was ready. It felt like one more way my mother was trying to good advice me into her world, when in reality I belonged in my own world. I felt like a squatter in hers. When my daughter was born and had to be hospitalized, 
my mother came to town immediately. I did not have to be hospitalized, though I was still weak and a bit bloody. I was fine. The trouble was my girls. She was having difficulty breathing and had to go on antibiotics. We were checked into St. Luke's Hospital under her name, a name that, such a strange thought, had only existed for 48 hours. Of the things I had feared about her birth, not one single fear was that she would not be okay. Of course she would be okay. I feared pain, blood, being cut, tearing, being transferred, the length, the duration, the emotions, the pressure, but none of my fears were on her behalf. I had been thinking like a daughter. My mother quit eating mammals after having children, something I did too. I remember a moment when my father-in-law planned to shoot a sow and her piglets because, he said, they breed like rabbits. Have you seen how big they get? They're the size of cars. They could kill us all. I found myself thinking that I couldn't blame them if they did. And it was a definite change in my alliances. I realized with an animal jolt that however well we got along, I had much more in common with the sow than I did with my father-in-law. Everything in my entire genealogy fought against leaving the daughter-only camp until a woman literally came out of me. Then suddenly I was climbing around the trees and could see the mastodons in the distance, and my very cells knew that my daughter was supposed to outlive me. It was a certainty, as was the heat of the sun, the wetness of water, the existence of dinosaurs. Looking back on my mother as she must have been at my age, then back further at my daughter's age, I feel a feral sort of love for her, and also a deep maternal empathy. There is something so vulnerable about that young woman. Her home life fell apart. Her father died when she was 25. Her stepmother took all the family money and tossed her childhood toys. She lost everything during her childhood. Perhaps that is why she collects? Why gifts mean to her what they do? 6. At Madewell, my mother beelined to the counter where laid-back young women, so unlike the two of us, folded clothes into tissue paper for the hip clientele. My mother, the most intense person in the shop, and also by far the oldest, squared her shoulders high and asked to see a blazer being held under her name. The young employee named Mirabelle, a small woman with a face like a thin petal and a large mole on her forehead, checked. Could it be under another name? She asked. I gave my name. Nothing. My mother's face and shoulders began to fall. This was a huge disappointment for her, and I could see she was not going to let it go. How disappointing, my mother said to me in a voice meant for Mirabelle. I used to think this was a great store. Mirabelle looked again, this time digging into a huge barrel of blue jeans scattering them all over the floor. No blazer. Then she asked, Do you remember who said she'd reserve it for you? I could list the names. My mother was out for revenge. Mirabelle could tell. Whoever this Madewell employee was who had failed to hold the blazer was on my mama's shit list, and she wanted her fired or at least in trouble. Mirabelle listed a few women's names who were working last night. None seemed to ring a bell. But while Mirabelle and I waited, 
to see on which one my mother would pin the guilty act. Mirabel asked gently, Would you like me to check in the back? My mother gave a terse nod. While she and I waited, we looked around. This was definitely not my kind of store. My mother knew that. Neither of us are comfortable with silence, and she broke it first. Last time I was here, I saw a pair of really cute stovepipe pants that would look great on you, but I know they're not your style. I know. She smiled. I know you know I know. Seven. One of my earliest memories of my mother is that she used to spread out a tarp in the living room on cold days and put a sandbox on it so that we could have a beach inside. My mother had a brood, four of us, all young at once. It would not have been easy for her to truck us all down to the park. A park within blocks, a nice park that children use, is a luxury. I think how my parents would have loved such a gift during my childhood. My daughter and I, on the nice days, always walked to the park. There is a swing she loved, a slide, and sand. One child is easy. You can walk to find sand. The winter my daughter turned two, my mother sent me a sandbox. Did she give me this gift anticipating more children and the impossibility of walks to the park? Or did she give it so that my daughter, like me, could have the great fun of playing with sand during the long northern winter months? My daughter comes with me to cafes, on walks, and to dinners, where she hangs out with the crowd until she begins to rub her eyes, and then she goes to sleep in a pack-and-play in a back bedroom. She makes friends in a jiffy, like my mother and I do. She is portable. She travels light. She has a backpack she adores, and she loves to put things in it. Her things. Things she chooses. Things of her own. My mother's sandbox rested against the wall in our empty living room for a week. The thought of filling it with water and sand, having my daughter use it for a week, then move on, filled me with dread. The thought of myself, not writing, not teaching, not reading bedtime stories, not making pancakes, not parenting, just cleaning up sand forever and ever and ever and ever. You win some, you lose some, was the subject of the email my husband sent to my mom. Elizabeth McKetta came into my office today crying about a sandbox. Okay if I give it to the school? My bountiful mother wrote back within the hour. Thank you for letting me know. Yes, of course, give it to the school if they want it. Sorry for any trouble that the gift caused. We gave the sandbox to the Montessori school. They were excited to have it. Eight. My mother knows that I only wear two things ever. Simple, mostly black, knee-length dresses without zips, buttons, or patterns, with leggings and a sweater in the winter. And yoga pants with black t-shirts painted by my artist friend Troy, with phrases like poets are weirdos, or breathe, or egg which is courage backwards, so you see it the right way in the mirror. I require very few clothes. My mother also knows that I dislike all shopping except for food shopping. We both love shopping for food because it feels productive, nourishing. It feeds our family. 
We both go to our local Whole Foods five to ten times a week on average, which we both know is absurd, yet somehow neither of us can help it. Like mother, like daughter. My daughter loves clothes and really likes to shop for them. And even though I loathe clothing shopping, I need to remember to do it with her and have fun doing so. My mother and daughter, each time they're in the same town, make a trip to dress the girl for the year. My mother knows how much fun it is to buy things you know your daughter, and her daughter, and onward down the generations, will love. I know this too. Just the previous night, when I was at an opening for a Gabriel Garcia Marquez exhibit just down the street from my parents' house, we were served Colombian food with doll-sized spoons and forks. My daughter is so deeply into her American Girl doll, Samantha, that she makes her a seat at every table and tears apart pieces of popcorn for her as an afternoon snack. Incidentally, her Samantha doll was a Christmas gift to me from my mother's mother who died five months later. The doll was what I had wanted more than anything else, and my parents would not buy it because it was too expensive. But Nana, who lived frugally in an apartment and had me over weekly to make Rice Krispie treats, Nana, who knew her time on earth was up soon, decided, for my sake, to splurge. I was nine when I received the doll, my daughter's age as I write this. I loved that doll ferociously until I outgrew her, and then my mother boxed her and waited patiently for the next generation. When that time came, my mother had Samantha fixed up at the doll hospital, her legs reattached, and her hair denested, to give her for Christmas to my daughter. A gift to a daughter's daughter, gifted to a daughter's daughter, 30 years apart. The gift itself, a sort of daughter, or at least that doll felt like a daughter to me. Now she is like a daughter to my daughter. At any rate, at the exhibit, I waited by the food bar and gathered a handful of these tiny forks and spoons so I could pack them in my bag and bring them home for my daughter's dolls. My husband would say, why are you hoarding this junk? And he would be only partially right. Nine. Mirabelle returned. She had a gray blazer, extra small, in a completely different style that neither my mom nor I liked. Mirabelle knew this. She had tried her best. It's okay, Mom, I said. And at last I told the full truth. I don't like it enough to warrant this. It's a nice blazer, but it's not necessary. Let's go home. But my mother was like a knight on a quest, and there was no stopping her. Elizabeth, please permit me, she said. Then back to Mirabelle she turned. Mirabelle said, we could see if there is an extra small in gray and another store in the U.S., then we could ship it to you. Yes, let's do that, my mother said decisively. But if it doesn't fit, I said, I won't have any way to return it. Just save it for me when I visit next, my mother said. Her lips pursed like a general's, and she followed Mirabelle up to the register. Mirabelle called headquarters. She was put on hold. Then she asked me for my address. I gave it to her, but she wrote my mother's name as the person living there. I pointed this out and gave her my name, and she changed it. She misspelled my first name, and I could feel my mother wincing invisibly next to me. At this point in Mirabelle's series of agonizing efforts, my mother and I stared at each other. Was it a stalemate? 
Was it instinct or genetic coding? Was my mother about to give up? It felt like we looked at each other so long that we folded into each other's reflections. So long that perhaps we are still there, still looking. My mother is furious. I am near panic overwhelmed. This day could go one way or it could go another. This is not the first time I've had a rift with my mother over a gift. I turn away first. This store has tiny travel kits and candles and expensive lotions and a thousand dresses I would never choose to wear. While we waited for Mirabelle's next attempt, I looked at the lotions, noticing that the ingredients were many of the same oils and essential oils I had at home. Castor oil, olive oil, lavender, cardamom, rosehip. That into those oils were mixed various chemical preservatives, words that our grandmothers would not be able to pronounce. I thought, I'm so glad I make my own toiletries and cleansers and lotions. This stuff is just filler. The same could be said about just about everything. My mom, waiting for Mirabelle to place the order so she could give her credit card, said sensitively to me, Do you want to look around at any other stores outside? I'll wait here. This was a generous act of rescue. Only she knew to what extent. So I stood outside in the sunlight, at the edge of the parking area. A one-man band played Janis Joplin's Bobby McGee, one of my favorite songs from high school. Beautiful South Austin women shuffled around, twirling down the sidewalks with their shopping bags. Across the street stood the ivy-covered hotel where my two non-family wedding guests had stayed for two nights. Down the street, I could see the iconic Austin Motel sign shaped like a middle finger riding from the humped knuckles of a hand, or like an erect penis and testicles. It felt either angry or reproductive, depending on the viewer's mood. I stretched and did some yoga in the sun. I thought, this is my mother, persistent, unable to let a thing go, especially when it involves her children. Whether advice or a blazer, no matter how long I live, I will never have her persistence. But I have other qualities that are foreign to her. I'm her daughter who needs next to nothing. My house where I live with husband and children is smaller than my mother's kitchen, and yet we have everything there we need. My mother at 73 still calls realtors regularly to try to buy a house big enough for all of her children should they all at once ever want to come home. 10. The last time I'd had a meal with both my parents and my children had been at an elegant restaurant near my tiny house several months earlier. I think it was Christmas Eve, or the eve before it. My daughter packed her doll Samantha for dinner, and her packing took a long time. I knew without a doubt that my parents were early to the restaurant, my mom reminding my dad to relax and stop checking the time. At home, my son-husband and I stood in our restaurant clothes, my six-year-old son itching in his fancy wool pants and wiggling a tooth, talking about strings and doorknobs, while she packed Samantha's tiny doll backpack. There, my daughter pronounced. We made it to the car, my spouse grumbling about grandparents' gifts. We made it to dinner, almost on time. 
The meal was one of the best I can remember having with both my parents and my young. Nobody checked their phones. Everybody laughed. Even the children were engaged in the storytelling. Midway through the meal, my daughter turned to me. I didn't even need Samantha's backpack. I didn't need any of her stuff. All I needed was her placemat, her pickles, her granola bar, and her water bottle. I didn't even need her microphone. 11. Back at the store, my mom was nearly done paying for the blazer, and she was thanking Mirabelle and giving her compliments. I like your shirt, my mom was saying. Isn't it so pretty how it opens at the back? This was her way of connecting, of apologizing. Then we walked out of Madewell to our badly parked car. We got into the car, both looking ahead and not at each other, fussing with our seatbelts, waiting for the other to assess what we had just experienced, to label it good or bad or funny, and our shared lexicon of values, our inborn, invisible, mother-daughter encyclopedia that blurred and slackened the longer we lived apart. Elizabeth, she said, facing me directly at last, you are the most patient person I have ever met. Mom, I said, you are the most persistent. She went on, I know you don't like clothes shopping. I like clothes shopping for you. I know, I said, thinking maybe one day I will like doing it for my own daughter. 12. My mother taught me to fight chaos with chaos. As an adult, I cannot. I fight it, fight to the bestial death with order. I've worked hard to be rooted to tamp down the unruly parts, to outsource tasks to other people, to take care of my children and my work and myself. I have daily routines, independent children, a calendar, generally good boundaries, dependable friends. When my mother comes to town, she works systematically and lovingly to uproot all of this. I know you said she has to carry all her own luggage, but... I know you only have a little bit of closet space at home, but... I know you said the dog only eats one scoop of kibble, but... My son is using the bathroom. Does he need help wiping? My mother asks. But are you sure he can do it? He's only four. I remember once my daughter was frustrated because she tried to advise her brother on which jelly beans to eat that wouldn't taste like toothpaste or ginger, and he told her to go away. He is asking for autonomy, she and I concluded, but she remained wounded and indignant. Her pre-adolescent eyes are hard. They are a dark and watchful brown, like mine, like my mother's, like her mother's. My daughter's eyes glare around the room like a judge at court. She has help to give, and how dare nobody want it. Like mother, like grandmother, snaking all the way up the line. 13. The gray blazer arrives on my mother's birthday in early March. It looks nice, my husband says in a tone of surprise. When the pandemic struck, I moved overnight to England with my family, packing in a curious moment of anticipating winter and having no idea how long we'd stay, the gray woolen blazer. My parents fled their house in their red state to the next blue state over. 
though with a little more preparation, like mother, like daughter. And the cold Cornish summer that is not a summer by any Texan standards, I wear that gray blazer that my mom gave me every single day. It is warm. It is comfortable. It lasted the summer and the fall and the winter and the spring. It still lasts, unlike many of the other clothes I brought that have since fallen apart. It is solid, warm, weighty, essential. It is made well, as the company promises. I suppose in the end, so are we, my mother and I. Thank you for tuning in. We're really glad you joined us today. Join us again next week and in the Mondays to come.